For those of you who do SOAP through the website, the app, or anything else, you will notice that we are not doing the handout SOAPs right now. And the reason why is because we're coordinating the SOAP readings with the sermons, and we're working through the sermons a little bit and changing how many we're doing on each book. Like we added a couple sermons to Genesis because it's just so rich. And so we moved down the SOAP readings in the Old Testament. So we were doing two chapters a day, and now we're at about half a chapter for the rest of Genesis, which is a few more weeks. Okay, so we can't really do that in a written form, but you can do this. You can just go to the website and look and it'll be right there or you can go to the app and you can look. It's right there. You don't have to click on it, which will take you right to the reading. You can just look on the website of the app and there's the reading. So if you like the paper version, love it. Okay, but there you go. Second thing I want to say is uh, Julie Jenkins, brother Frank, how many people know him? Frank the Tank, and he passed away yesterday. So uh, you're going to want to love on JJ, and Lord, in Jesus' name, we just pray for her, and we pray for, we thank you for receiving Frank into yours, and that his last words were about you, and that in Jesus' holy and precious name, that you will hold on to Julie as she lets go of this incredible man and this incredible brother, this incredible person that you made that was so important to her life. So bless her and hold her and keep her, Lord. Jesus' holy and precious name, just surround her with your love, your family, your presence. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, um, so uh, go ahead and start clock and calendar and recording and everything else. Um, And I just want to say two things. One, I know a lot of people are traveling because of Mother's Day, so whatever, but, uh, but bottom line, this is not a Mother's Day sermon, okay? Uh, this is so far from Mother's Day sermon, you can't even believe it, okay? Now, usually, I love doing Mother's Day sermons, and I've learned in the millennial age that a man shouldn't always do that, so we've had lots of women speak on Mother's Day and men speak on Mother's Day, and we've had incredible Mother's Day sermons for many years. Just this year, something happened. And what happened was, is the Lord just really impressed upon me that he is doing something significant and he wanted me to stay the course. He wanted me to do what he was telling me to do. And you're going to see why, because this comes literally right out of Kevin's sermon, which was so fantastic and so important. So with that in mind, here's the way to get set up for today's sermon. And that is this, have you ever wondered in your heart why God wasn't being more responsive to what's happening in your life. I mean, has anybody ever not wondered that? Uh, don't you have at least one time in your life where you're going, God, do you know what's happening with me? Because <laughs> if you did, it seems like you would be doing something. It seems like you'd be responding to this. It seems like, and there's this thing in us that kind of go, you know, right? But Do you care? Do you care what's going on with me? Like, what are you doing? It doesn't look like there's anything that you're doing, and I don't understand why you would let that happen like that. And, you know, are you distant? And you see what I'm saying? That, that spirit, that heart. Well, here's what I want to tell you. If you will really work to stay in the flow of what God's going to say today, and I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be easy. Like I say, not a Mother's Day sermon. This is, I feel sorry for the people that aren't here 
because this is so amazing. But in order to get to what's amazing about it, in order to get to the revelation, the aha, the thing that's going to make the difference, you really have to catch there's about four or five movements of the symphony that ha you have to get. And if you do, when God gets to the resolution of it, it'll just be, oh my gosh. I mean, I literally titled the sermon, Amazing. Because that's where he's taking us today, into a revelation that is amazing and will wipe away every thought you've ever had about whether or not he knows what's going on and whether he cares and whether he's there. You'll just, I'm serious, I really believe if you get what he's trying to say today, you'll never have that thought again. I'm not saying it won't come into your mind. I'm saying what will come into your mind right with it is this thought, this revelation right here, and it'll, you'll just go, oh, well, it's ridiculous. Of course he's there. And of course he's doing something way beyond. So with that, who's our prayer? Kathy Miller, what a great choice, Mom. You know, kind of a mom to the whole congregation. I love that. That is incredible, beautiful. Okay, great. So pray for the sermon, lift up another church. Well, Father, what a blessing it is to have biological children, to have church children, to have church family. I can't say thank you enough for who you've given to us here on this side. Father, you're an amazing God, and you have such wonderful plans for our life, and they just keep getting better and better and better. But I want to know deep within me, I want my roots to be sunk down so deep into your love, into your care, into your mercy, and into your love, Thank you, that I will never, ever, ever doubt that you love me and care for me and that you will provide wisdom and knowledge when I need it, not before and not after, but just when I need it. Amen. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Jesus. Teach us your ways, O oh God, so that we might walk in your truth. Give us an undivided heart so that we can lift up your holy name in praise. Father, take care of the Rock Church in Wasilla, Alaska. My family needs to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Bless Kurt. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. What a beautiful prayer. Way to go, Mom. <laughs> okay. In order to really get where we're going, like I say, there's about four or five movements. And the first one is, is we need to pick up exactly where Kevin left off. Okay? So it's a, just a slight review, but then we're going to, like I say, we're going to start hitting some other themes in it. So we're in chapter 15 of Genesis, and it starts like this. Okay? God basically comes to him and says, how you doing, Abram? Okay. And then Abram replies, oh, sovereign Lord, you have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. The reason why that's, that's a tricky thing for God to say, Abraham at this point in time is 83 years old. And by the way, it's going to be 17 years. He'll be 100 years old before he has his first child. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, now this is that still small moment. Kevin's point last week was so profound because it was so simple. And what, what it was was is, is, look, it's in the still small quiet moments that the most important things happen. And out of those comes everything else. So here's just a moment. It's like a million other moments that, that Abram might have had, right? This is not a big moment. This is not a big crisis moment. This is not a big, 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 big. This is a, just a small moment 
where Abraham and God are talking, and God takes him out, and he says, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And right here is the key to it. The, the whole Bible literally balances on this truth right here. It turns, everything turns right now. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous, right standing, because of his faith. Now, we have to understand that, so we're going to just we're going to drop back just a little bit and understand the profundity of that moment, which, as I say, the whole Bible turns on this truth. And one of the ways that I can say that and know that it's true is this. On, at Easter, I'm not going to explain the whole thing again, but at Easter I did this, and other people who have been here for a while have seen this before. But this is basically the whole flow of human history. And just to sum it up for the purposes that we're using it today, it starts over there in the garden where God made us to be with us, but he gave us free will. We used our free will to choose a thing that separated us from him. So the whole rest of history, starting at number two in the top, the whole rest of human history is trying to bring back what God made us for, which was relationship. How do we get there? And what God did was he said, if you chose to think that you knew better, I'm going to let you try and get back. I'm going to let you see over hundreds and thousands of years. Think about something here. When God is proving something to us, he doesn't just say, this is the way it is. He shows us this is the way that it is. He demonstrates the truth of it. And the truth of it is, is that in, the, in, in just that number two right there, we've got, we've got tons of time where mankind is completely on their own. And it leads to the flood. It leads to a place where everybody is disconnected from God completely and worse than you would ever imagine. And then it goes on. And from three, four, five, six, and seven, and then all the way back, what God is doing is he's saying, okay, you couldn't do it on your own, so now I'm going to give you help. I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you a prophet. I'm going to help you try and get back to me, essentially, though, on your own. You see it? He's going to help us. And even with the help, even with all the different ways he helped us, we never even get close. Just... Okay, there's a way to think about this as a Christian and say, oh, God is so completely holy that if we make even the tiniest little mistake, we're not with him. We've separated ourselves. And that's how we kind of think about it. See, we're basically good. You know what I mean? But if we make any mistake, so I get it. And so Jesus had to die for me to correct the fact that I didn't do a devotional this morning. Is that why Jesus had to die for you? Because I can tell you that's not it. There's another truth, and this is a hard thing we're, we're going to go into here in just a couple minutes. But the truth of the matter is, is that you're not in your natural state, absent his presence in your life, you are not who you think you are, even close. Not even close. And what God is doing through the whole of human history is he's proving that. He's saying, you think if you got a little help, the law, a king, a prophet, you think you'd get it, but you don't. We don't. We just don't. So that's what that is. And basically, another way of saying this is going to be important and is important for this thing. What he's saying is, is works. You cannot 
Make the choices that it takes to get back to God. You, we think, well, if I just do a bunch of really good things, it'll overcome the bad things that I do. It'll balance out. Well, he's going after something much more profound. He's saying he's, what, what, human, what history is supposed to be teaching us, including the law, what it's supposed to be teaching us is we are utterly and completely unable in ways that are so much more profoundly bad than we ever think of ourselves that we can't, we're not even close to getting back to him. It's not like we're, we're, we're real close and we just need a little help to get over. We are completely different than what we think. And this is a, a lie that's come into the world. We're going to look at it in a second. But I just want you to get that. And I want you to see this. Now, here's what happens next. I just told you that Abraham believed and it was counted in him as righteousness is what the whole Bible turns on. Here's the reason why I say that. Because in the New Testament, when God is revealing what his plan is, after he's let us try it every other way, and now God reveals his plan, Jesus. When God does that, even the gospel writers don't get it, really. It's a guy named Paul who gets it. He's the only one who does. To the point that he ends up in a fight with James, who is the leader, Jesus' brother, who's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And James doesn't get it. It's only Paul. I'm not saying the gospel writers don't get who Jesus is and everything else, but there is a profoundness of revelation that the Pharisee of Pharisees brings. Think about who Paul is. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I excelled amongst all the Pharisees. What's a Pharisee? A person who's really trying hard to do it right, get it right. A person who's trying to obey the law to where they please God. And Paul is saying, I was excelling all of my peers in trying to get it right by obeying the law. And then what happened was, is he realized, oh my gosh, I've, I'm looking in the wrong place entirely. I've got this exactly backwards. What life is trying to teach me is, is that I cannot get there. And so God does. And I think that he really learned the depths of this. This is speculation. But I think he learned the depths of it when he was caught up to heaven, to the third heaven, where he said, I saw things that you can't even talk about. And I think that when he saw God and he realized who God really is, it was like it just became clear to him all of a sudden, oh my God, this thing we do in religious impulses, trying to get back to God, trying to be holy, trying to be good, trying to not be bad, try, 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 try. This religious impulse that we have, we don't understand him at all when we're oriented to that. We don't understand who we are and we don't understand who he is. And I think when he saw God and he realized it, he came back and he started saying to people through this most theological book of the whole Bible, Romans and Galatians, he says, now this is just one place. There's many I could have picked where Paul is using Abraham because he uses him over and over and over again because this is so important. And here's what he does. Abraham was, he says in Romans 4, Abraham was the founder of our Jewish nation. In other words, he's the father of us. And God is the one who made him the father of us. What did he discover about being made right with God? How did he discover to get right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. That's what Paul discovered. 
For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Not that he was religious, not that he did good things, not that he didn't do bad things. He believed him and that's what made him standing right with God. Right, right, every time you hear righteousness, always have in your mind, just immediately interpret it as standing right with God, meaning you're, you're with him. And so what he does, he says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. And he's saying, did anybody earn what Christ did? But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, religious impulses, things they do and don't do, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Sinners. I, I, I really... Look, watch what happens. Paul gets into a fight with James, who James is trying to steal this truth from Christians. It's faith, not works. You would think, after Paul did that, that all the Christians that are there go, oh my God, Jesus Christ is my Savior, and religious works don't get me there, and I'm not supposed to be oriented to them. I'm supposed to be oriented to a relationship with the one who saves me, you would think every Christian from that point in time would understand this truth that Paul gives and we would all live in that grace, which is what it's called. We would all live in that free gift that Jesus gave. You would think that, wouldn't you, right? But you know what actually happened in religious history? James fought Paul and then Paul, even though he was in Rome preaching this stuff, the same religious spirit crept into Rome and the Catholic Church became for 1,500 years, by the time 1,500 years was up, by the time Martin Luther got here, the Catholic Church had become what James says about it. It's not just faith. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by them. And so the Catholic Church says, oh, it's faith and works. And by the time we get to Martin Luther, here's the point about Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the same guy as Paul is. Martin Luther is the guy who's excelling above all of his peers and trying to get it right religiously. Martin Luther is the guy who discovers this. The harder I try to get it right, the more that I get it right according to the way we define right, the more I realize how far I am from God. The closer I actually get to God, the more that I realize who I really am. And then he says, oh my gosh, there's no way for me to save myself. Not even a little. I don't understand myself at all. And so Martin Luther is the one who says this, sola fide, faith alone. Think about that now. The church, with the revelation of Paul, loses it for 1,500 years. <laughs> and it's not until Martin Luther comes back that he says there's a reformation. There is a protestant. I am protesting, Protestant, what the Catholics are saying, <laughs> what the church is saying. It's not about faith and works. It's faith alone. And when you got it wrong, you get it all wrong. And you don't understand who God is, and it ruins your relationship with him. Because you just can't ever be good enough. Anybody got that as a parent in some fashion? You see it? 
right? The thing that we have to get a hold of, the thing that we have to understand is what the cross really means. Everything I'm talking about, this faith thing that Abraham did, that Paul recognized, what do we call it? Grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. You know what? I love, I'm putting myself in here. We think we know what grace means because we say unmerited favor, which means I can't earn it, I don't deserve it. Unmerited favor. Jesus died for me even though I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, I can't earn it, I can't deserve it. Okay? Unmerited favor. That's a, such a poor definition of grace. Even though it's true. It's superficial and it's shallow. Grace is the cross. Grace is the free gift of Jesus Christ to somebody who was in such deep need as we're going to see in a second. But here, let me just try a little bit. Grace is the intimate, deepest possible love relationship that we come into with God that he made possible because we could not. That's what it is. That's what the New Testament, that's the good news. The, the, the New Testament is called the good news. What's the good news? You can't, <laughs> but he did. So come and be with him. Choose to be with him. He loves you. That's good news. He loves you despite who you are, and we're about to find out. Okay, now, okay, we got it? Now, here's, here's the next movement, okay? Chapter 15, we just did faith. Now, then the Lord told Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? I love Abram's relationship with the Lord, by the way. It's okay to ask God questions. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and he killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle halves and laid the halves by the side. Happy Mother's Day. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. Now, what, what this is called is, what God is doing right here is he's cutting a covenant. Now, I tried to find a good illustration somewhere all over Google and the whole universe of the internet, and I could not find a good illustration. This is the best one I came up with. I hate it. It's cheesy, but whatever. Okay, look, what this is, is see, you cut the animals in half. And then what happens is you go with somebody else, the two of you, you have obligations, they have obligations. The two of you join up and you walk through the halves. And what you're saying is, may it be done to me what we did to these animals if I don't keep my part of the bargain. See? Now, I want you to understand something. There were contracts in that day and age. We still have contracts today. You know, we don't have covenants. We don't make covenants with each other. In the Old Testament, we did make, they did, people did make a few, but you know what happened? People quit making them. You know why? Because people aren't faithful enough. <laughs> and they end up getting killed or should be killed. 
We make contracts, though, all the time. What's a contract? It's, it's beneficial for you and I to be in some sort of relationship, commercial relationship or whatever. And so I'm making a contract with you. And what's going to happen is as long as it's good for you and as long as it's good for me, we keep the contract because it's beneficial to us. But someday it may not be beneficial to us, and that's okay. That happens. Life changes, right? And when a contract is no longer beneficial to both parties, what do you do? You get out of it. <laughs> and there's one particular, there's many ways that they made contracts in the Old Testament. But one way that was pretty cool was, is that you had these two guys and they were making a contract. And what they did was, is they said, okay, I want this from you and you want this from me. So we've made this agreement, we made this contract. And then they call all the elders of the village... All the elders stand around, and then what they do is they say, okay, we're entering into this contract. These are my obligations. These are that person's obligations. And in order to prove that if, if I ever get to where I say, no, I didn't make that contract, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my shoe. Everybody knows it's my shoe, and I'm going to give it to the other guy. And everybody's going to see the shoe. That guy's got the shoe. And then if I ever break the covenant, and I say, oh, I didn't say that, then all the elders come back around and they say, not only did we hear you say that, but why does he have your shoe? <laughs> See, he's got your shoe. You gave him the shoe for a reason. The reason is what we're saying it was. You made a contract and now you're trying to break it. It's okay, it's not the end of the world. Break the contract, figure out what the penalties are and get out of it. This happens, it's okay. That is not what a covenant is. A covenant is, may it be done to me what we did to these animals if I don't keep my part of this bargain. You see it? Watch something that God's trying to do in covenants. There's, there's two things that actually come out of them because God makes a lot of covenants. Four primary ones, but there's a lot of covenantal theology we're gonna look at in a sec. But I want you to watch something. Here's what God's trying to reveal in it. Two things. Number one, us. It turns out we're not very good at keeping our end of the bargain. No matter what it is, no matter how easy it was, no matter whatever, no matter how beneficial it was to us, we're just not good at keeping our end of the bargain. Number two, but God is. God makes covenants of that import because he's trying to communicate something to us. I keep my promises. No matter what, no matter when, we make a covenant and situation changes and it doesn't seem like we want to be in that arrangement anymore. God is saying, I make an agreement and I keep it till the end of time. Now understand one of the things being said there, I can do that because I know it. I know everything that's going to happen. And so I make covenants that I will keep because I know what's going to happen. Do you see that? I make promises I can keep because I know what's going to happen. You see it? So God's revealing himself in covenants in a way that's quite profound. And here is just a little chart. I don't even think you can read it, but this is, this is a way of studying theology and it's called covenantal theology. And what you do is, is you go down there and there's covenants and then you go down there and there's covenants of grace. And by the way, at the very end of it, you see it, the new covenant all the way to the right there. This is the new covenant that was made in Jesus Christ. But you see you have, you can't even read it, but the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that's what we're looking at today. The Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Okay? 
And what we're doing is, is God has made all these covenants. But here's, okay, now, that was, act, that was movement number two. But we're still, this is 2B, and we're still in covenants right now. And now what I got to do is I got to show you something about the Noahic covenant. Justine did a phenomenal sermon on it a few weeks ago. It was incredible about, you know, knowing who God is and so on and Noah and everything else. But I want to show you something about that time. So just dry, dropping back there real quick. And remember, everything we're doing here is because we want to get a better understanding of the New Testament because we more deeply understand the Old. That's our goal. So I need you to see something about this Noahic covenant that we don't. So watch this. 6-1, this is right before the flood. As far as God was concerned, the earth had become a sewer. There was violence everywhere. The thought of everyone was violent, is what it says in a more literal translation. God took one look and saw how bad it was. Everyone corrupt and corrupting. They were, in, they were what they were, they were pouring out. Life itself corrupt to the core. God said to Noah, it's over. The violence is everywhere. I'm making a clean sheet, build a boat. See it? So this is the beginning of it. But now watch this. He builds a boat. The animals go in. 40 days of rain. And then a whole long time before it dries out. And then when it finally draws out and they're on dry land, the first thing that Noah does is Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that have been approved for that purpose. Remember, there wasn't just two pair of every animal. Some of them had additional pairs, which were the sacrificial animals. And they were used for the sacrifice after the flood. So, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. He's making a promise. I'll never do that again. Now watch this though. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Now wait a minute. He killed all of the bad people. Noah was a good person. Maybe his sons and daughters weren't so good, but Noah was a good person, right? That's not the testimony that God's giving here. He's saying, I'll never again destroy the earth, even though they're just the same as they were. See it? Now watch. Here's what we think. We think that people are basically good. That's what we think. The problem is, the whole of human history, God proves over and over throughout history, without restraining us, everything we think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Just what he said. Now watch this. So God did something after the flood. Remember I said he kept giving us helps? The first six chapters of Genesis are God saying, you wanted to be on your own, I'm leaving you completely on your own. What was the result? Every thought was violence. We made life horrible, a sewer. Dangerous and short. Now, after the flood, God does a new thing in the world. He gives us a help. And the help is, now, this is in reference to Revelation, which we're going to get to, but watch this. After the flood, God starts restraining people from who they actually are in themselves. Here's what says it. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness, non-God, choosing your own way. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. This is a little bit complicated way of saying this. The Holy Spirit is in the world and he works through governmental authorities. The Roman Empire is one of the things being referred to here. He works through certain people. He works through certain situations. The Holy Spirit is now, he let us be on our own for six chapters. But now what he's doing is he's restraining. All the time since the flood, he's been restraining people from what they were, which was evil continually. But he's restraining us. And not just through governmental authorities and other people and stuff. He's doing it in our conscience. The Bible talks over and over about the Holy Spirit is in every person's conscience, whether they know God or not. And they have a sense of right and wrong because there's something in their life that's restraining them from what they would otherwise do. Do you see that? Now, we got to understand something. See, we think that people are basically good, but the Bible is making the exact opposite argument. He's saying people are, people are deplorable to a degree that people have no idea about because I've been restraining. The reason why you think people are good is because I'm there helping them be good. But if I'm not there anymore, they're going to get horrible. And you want to know the proof of that? Think about this. The Bible is bookended with the same story of God proving to people who they really are. He lets us be on our own for the first six chapters, and it's a horror show to a sewer. But at the very end, the same thing happens. Did you know that? At the very end in Revelation, here's what it says. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been what? Killed. For what? For being thieves? For cheating on people? For murdering people? For doing something bad? What were they killed for? The word of God, that they actually said God, not the world. That's it. The ways of God are better than the ways of the world. What you want to do is not the best thing. God has a better way for you. That's all they're saying. And for that, it incenses the people of the world so much that they start killing anybody who will say that. Now, that's true even right now. There's more persecution going on of Christians in the world right now than any time before. Right now, the worst persecution. It's reaching genocidal levels in many countries in the, in the world. Now, having said that, though, at the very end, God, with, God who is restraining withdraws and lets people get to the depths of what they would be without his restraint. And this is what we're seeing. They shouted, Lord, and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters had come in. See, you know what that's saying? Until more people die. After this, now this is Revelation 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count from every nation, tribe, language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, which we just saw, and they held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, because now it's over. Salvation comes from our God. They were crying out before, how long? Now they're saying, oh my gosh. 
Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they sang, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength and end and end and end and end. Belong to our God forever and ever. They have now seen his plan played out and they are blown away. They thought, how long don't you see? Don't you care? And now they see what he does and they say, oh, it was so much better and more than we thought. Do you see it? This is the revelation that they're having in heaven. And then it goes like this. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And John says, I don't know. You're the one who knows. And then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. Just super clear. What's the great tribulation? Real simple. The great tribulation is the time when the Holy Spirit and every agency that he uses is withdrawn so that people sink down to who they really are in themselves and they become so furious about anybody that has any connection or relationship to God that they kill them en masse. They go crazy. Insane, we say. That's so aberrant, meaning not normal. The Bible is saying the exact opposite. It's saying, if I weren't restraining, this is what it would be like all the time. God is restraining what would otherwise be because if he didn't, the world would be uninhabitable. He wants to work through having a relationship with us and if he doesn't restrain people so that life is livable, it wouldn't be about people finding God. It would just be about hiding in a cave until you die. Do you see it? He's restraining so that people can live a life and come to make a real choice about God. That's what he's doing. He's restraining so that people don't just die. You see it? Again, I'm sorry about this being a sermon I'm doing on Mother's Day. Truly. But I got to tell you, I need you to grasp what's being said right here because if you don't, you're not going to get what's about to come. And if you don't get what's about to come, you're going to miss something so important. It's not just that we have the bookends of Noah and then the end. You do know that these things have been cropping up all along, right? You got this place, Sodom and Gomorrah, where the whole town goes so crazy, just insane. This is a place where God let humankind, let humankind see in history a place where things went to their natural level, absent his restraint. Pharaoh's another one. When Moses is coming back down to get the Israelites out of Egypt, he told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh, perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do, the 10 plagues. But I will harden his heart so he refuse to let people go. Now, there's two ways of understanding this. The first one is, there was this perfectly wonderful, neutral heart. And God said, I'm going to make it, no, no, I'm going to make it hard. I'm going to make your heart hard. But that's not how to understand it at all. 
Here's what's being said. God is restraining hearts from being as hard as they would otherwise be. And in Pharaoh, he's going to withdraw that so that we see how hard a heart can be. And here's what's unbelievable about Pharaoh. The first two miracles that Moses does, the first two plagues, his magicians imitate it. And so he has a reason for not really believing Moses is from God, right? He could just be a magician. But when you get from three to 10, you're way past anything the magicians do. In fact, the magicians themselves are saying, his own priests are saying, get them out of here. <laughs> Let them go. <laughs> and Pharaoh always has that impulse after a plague. The first thing he does is, oh my God, this is horrible. This is so terrible. I'm so sorry. I repent. Literally, I repent. And you can go, go. But then he waits for a moment. And he thinks about it. And his heart is revealed at his next deeper hardness. And then he relents from his repent. And he says, you can't go. Now, that's a, that's a story that's important for all of us to understand because that's God showing us in a particular human heart what all of our hearts really are. We think that certain people are just really evil. See, it's not just Pharaoh, by the way. You can go through the rest of the Bible. You can go through the rest of history. Explain Hitler to me. Because I'll tell you how everybody explains Hitler. That guy was just evil. And what they mean by that is, is I would never do that. But do remember something. It wasn't just Hitler. Remember, it was the whole stinking German nation. Not all of them. Bonhoeffer and some notable exceptions. But do think about the entire nation of Germany decided that it was a good idea to kill six million Jews. To the point that at one point in time, they're starting to lose the war on some critical fronts. And they should be diverting all the trains that are taking Jewish people to the, to the uh, Auschwitz and so on. They should be diverting those trains to getting supplies to their troops. And they double, they increase the amount of trains taking Jews to be killed when they're now losing the war because of it. Do you see that? And we say, I would never do that. That is insane. That is crazy. But here's the problem. Throughout biblical history and throughout history itself, God is proving to us over and over and over something that is the opposite of what we think. Those are evil people, and I would never do that. And what God is saying is, no, that's how you all are. That's who we are. Absent his grace, absent his love, his restraint. I, I realize that that may just be super hard for somebody to hear. And can I tell you something right here? This is super important that I'm about to say. This is the lie that has taken over our culture in particular. We are so prosperous. And frankly, people are pretty good to each other. That honestly, it becomes kind of hard to figure out why God would judge us. Sure, we do some bad things, but is it really worth eternal damnation? 
I had an affair. It's not the worst thing in the world. I realized it was terrible. I realized, you know, it was harmful to my wife and my children. I realized I did a terrible thing, but I even regret it. Hopefully. Do you see it? But really, do I get eternal hell for that? Let me tell you right now. No. You don't. That's not why you get eternal hell. It's not why you get it. Do you hear You hear me? If you think that's what it is and that's what it's about, then you live in a kind of Christianity and a kind of relationship with God that is totally off base. What you have to do is you have to come to understand this is the lie that has been put out into our culture. And this is why at this point in time, people that don't know the Lord can tell Christians who God is. God is loving. God is tolerant. We're not that bad. People are basically good. Do you see it? This is the lie that has completely infiltrated our culture. And this is why we don't get it. We don't get the need for God. Because we don't understand the degree to which what we're living in right now is a phenomenal bubble of grace. And just like every bubble that has ever come, what happens to bubbles? We think that certain people are just really, but we're not like them. When in fact, God proves over and over throughout history that without his restraining us, everything we think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. Now that's the big movement that we had to make in our symphony in order to understand what we're now going to get to, which is the revelation and the end of this. We cannot understand the enormity of God's mercy without understanding the depths of who we really are. Do you see that now? You see how understanding the Old Testament and the whole of Scripture deepens our understanding of New Testament, Christianity. Do you see what's happening here? If you start to understand who you really are, all of a sudden you start understanding God's mercy totally differently. I was kind of a bad person and you saved me. Thank you. I am violently and utterly opposed to you. And you died for me? You see what two completely different statements those are? When we understand who we really are, we see much more deeply all he had to do to save us. The real cost of the cross. It's the cost that Jesus had with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which we talk about all the time, the separation. But you have to understand the people who he was doing it for were his enemies. Not people who were kind of good. They were people that absent his restraint would kill anybody. Remember Paul? Remember what he did before he became a Christian? He was killing Christians. This is what it is. You see it? Is this, I hope this is starting to blow your mind already. It's going to get better. We cannot really understand the cross until we really understand the depths of us. You see it? I, do, do, can I just show you? What I said, has it made you appreciate the cross more? Has it? I hope so, because this is what we're doing. This is what I think God wants us to do. He wants to ground our New Testament understanding, Jesus Christ. He wants to ground him in what he's revealed in the whole of Scripture. This is what we're doing here. This is why I think it's so important. This is that spirit that he started you with in January. And like he does every year, he starts us in January, and then he works it out in the ways that we go, oh my gosh, I had no idea. 
And in January, he put on your heart to do, we need to know God better. We need to know his character. We need to know his names. And then we flowed right into what we're doing right now. And look at this. It's the same thing. Only he's just taking it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And now we get to the actual sacrifice, to the actual moment of the covenant being cut. But watch this. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came. Why is he terrified? The presence of the Lord is here. He's a sinner and a holy God is here. So a terrifying darkness came over him. And Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. No, that's not right. God is making a covenant with who? Humankind. Humankind has a role. We need to be in there going through it with him, right? He's making a covenant with us and we're not even there. We're asleep. <laughs> what, this doesn't make any sense. This is nuts. This is, what are you doing, God? I don't understand what you're doing. Now watch this. Why doesn't Abraham go through it with him? Why doesn't God have Abram go to sleep, go, go through it with him? Why doesn't God have Abram, the father of us? He becomes Abraham, the father of many nations, and we're it. I'm, his, I'm a child of Abraham. Why doesn't he have Abraham go through it? Because of what we've been talking about. Abraham cannot fulfill his part of the covenant, and it will lead to our death. God keeps his promises and he keeps the other party true to theirs. And if we had walked, if he had put us in walking through that, he would have had to kill every one of us. Do you see it? That's why he doesn't go through with him. What God is saying is we will not, cannot fulfill our part of the covenant. So, oops, God makes the covenant with himself. You see it? God's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with myself and I'm going to keep it. But wait a minute, he's making a covenant with us and he's saying, that's right, and I'm going to keep my part of the bargain with you. Do you see it? Does that sound like a little grace in there somewhere? Are you starting to see what might be actually happening in this moment? Because I want you to think about two things right now. The first one is this. Who is it that's walking through that there? It's a smoking pot and a fiery torch. Who is that? God. So who walked through there with himself? God. Right? And who do we say Jesus is? God. Which is to say Jesus is one of the ones that was walking through that, and this is what it cost him. That covenant that God made cost Jesus that. As God. Do you see it? It was God that was walking through the covenant. And so God said, you've offended, not you, you've offended me. And normally you'd have to pay for that. But I'm going to pay for it. By bringing it upon myself what was due you. Right? So it has to be God. Jesus has to be God. It's God taking upon himself what we did to him. We're the ones that beat him. We're the ones that flayed him. We're the ones that caused him to bleed. We're the ones that pulled ourselves away. This is him taking upon himself what was due us. As God, the one that we offended. We offended him, 
We did that to him, and he's the one paying for us. How does that make any sense? And yet, that's the good news. This exceedingly great news. But it gets even better. Because Jesus is fully God. And what? A man born of a woman. There was a human being walking through the torch. There was a human being walking through the cut. Jesus. He hadn't done it yet, but he did it instead, in our stead. Do you see this? Jesus, who would become a man and would die for us, is walking through the cut. And he's the one that fulfills every part of it. He's the one that never sins, obeys even unto death. Oh my gosh, that's a great revelation. I'd love to just take some more time on that one. I think we're doing it again in a week or so. But bottom line, I want to tell you something. That's not the revelation that I think God wants to bring you. That Jesus was in that cutting of the covenant. That's a pretty good one, right? But let me show you one better for this day. How big is the Bible? Anybody got a Bible here? Hold it up, would you? Hold that Bible up there, right there. All right, now see how big that, see how thick that Bible is? Now turn that Bible to page, to chapter six of Genesis. How close to the beginning of that book is that chapter? Chapter 15, I'm sorry, I meant 15, but it's only a couple pages more. But you see that? Do you see that? Look at that. Now, I'd say that that was right at the beginning of the book, wouldn't you? At the very beginning of a very long book with a whole lot of stuff going on in it. At the very beginning of the book, in one moment, God putting Abram to sleep and walking through the covenant with himself, walking through the cut with himself, he summed up the whole of salvation history, the reason for creation, everything, in one moment. All those pages, all those words, all those concepts, all of them, if you were to put them in, distill them down into what it is, it's right there in that moment. Mankind cannot fulfill it, so God does for us because he loves us. Extraordinary, right? But let me make it more extraordinary. I need you to do some time traveling now. I need you to go back. And I need you to think about these words, because remember, there's a whole lot of people that lived before Jesus did, right? So I just need you to be one of those people who lived before Jesus did. I don't care if it's a day before Jesus did, or if it's all the way back to right at the time that Abram did this. But here's what I want you to see. Read those words not knowing anything about Jesus and tell me what the heck they mean. Take Jesus out of the equation. You don't know about Jesus, tell me what it means. I think the furthest you can get, if you just really press into it, the furthest you can get is here. Mankind can't keep their part of the covenant, and so God did something. So God had to do something. See that? Now, that's not a bad message to get out of it, right? But you still don't get what was happening there until what? Until Jesus shows up. Until Jesus, it's very hard, impossible to see and understand what's happening there. And nothing in all of human history helps us understand those words and what's going on there. Nothing. 
until Jesus. But when Jesus shows up, it's completely obvious. Do you see it? It's like, I understand exactly what those words mean now. God took upon himself in Jesus Christ the penalty for what I would deserved and has invited anybody to be in relationship with him and to be spared, to be saved, to be made new, to be given the heart of God so that we can love God and be in relationship with him like he, like he intended from the very beginning. Do you see it? Look at the words now. Until Jesus shows up, it's very hard, in fact, basically impossible to see and understand what's going on. But when Jesus shows up, it's completely obvious. Which is just like it is with our lives right now. God is doing stuff in our lives and we don't have any understanding what it is. We can't understand it. And so we just sort of skip over it and we say to him, don't you see me? Don't you see what I'm going through? Don't you understand what's going on? Don't you get it? Don't you care? How can I trust you? You don't seem to understand what's happening with me. Do you see it? This is what we do. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and we go, oh, <laughs> sorry. Wow, like Job when he finally sees God, right? Wow, I'd heard about you with my ears, but now I see you. Oh my gosh. I want you to think about it this way. There's going to be a moment where you're going to be in heaven and you're going to be standing before Jesus. And in this moment, everything in your life is going to be for the first time crystal clear. It's beginning and it's end. Everything. You're going to find out something that's going to shock you. Every single second was filled with God's will. He was doing something every moment. Everything. And you're going to see it. There's a verse that talks about him wiping away the tears and what that means in its first instance is, is that people who have been martyred and persecuted for their faith have tears and he wipes them away because they're saved now and they're free from this and they're safe. But I got to tell you, I think there's a second batch of tears we all got. Oh my God. <laughs> How did I not see it? Why didn't I trust you? I accused you and you were doing the most extraordinary thing in the most amazing way. Here's what I think it's all about. Be like Abram. Believe. <laughs> know that he's there in the still, small, quiet moments. Trust him. Believe him. He sees it, he knows it, he's got it, and one day you're going to get it, and when you do, you're going to be not just thankful, you're going to be bowled over. You were doing that, and I was focused on that? Oh my gosh. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I just want to thank you, and then I want to thank you, and then I want to thank you again. 
this congregation wants to come before you and we want to say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We want to say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make me get it. Make me understand it. Make it become real to me. God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, make it real to me. Make me start to see things in my life and the things that I can't understand at those moments in time. Make me just trust you so much that it never enters my mind. Or if it does, it is immediately wiped away by God is doing something. He does see. He does know. He does get it. You are doing something. You are amazing in what you're doing. Astounding. Beyond my comprehension has not even entered into the mind of man. It says the things that God has prepared. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we enter into you. Right now, we take this communion that's in front of us. There's two cups in front of you in the chair. 